Good morning. I'm thankful to be here this morning. Thankful that John would ask me to come and to fill for him while he's away. Thankful to Affirmation Presbyterian Church for letting me come and be with you. It's like a homecoming to be back here at Westminster. And I bring greetings from Affirmation. It's also a blessing to be on the platform with Dan Elmendorf. We go back a long time. Dan and I met many years ago, and, and he asked me to come and to fill the pulpit at a CMA church up in Kingston. And uh, the Lord brought Dan into Christina's life and mine at just a perfect time. And uh, that was a great blessing to us, and Dan has been ever since, and I'm thankful for him. And so it is good to be with you this morning. July 16th, 1999. You may not remember the date, but many of you will remember the event that took place on that day. Uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. took off in his Piper Saratoga from Teterboro Airport and was flying that evening out to Martha's Vineyard. It was a very hazy evening. JFK Jr. was a relatively new pilot. He was working on his instrument rating. He did not yet have it. He took off out of Teterboro and headed out over the Atlantic Ocean. But because of the haze, when you're flying, a hazy day is slightly dangerous because your visibility is limited. Even more dangerous when you fly in hazy skies over water because there's a very good chance that you lose perspective on your horizon. You, you can't tell. It, it may be hard to understand, but it's very hard to see the distinction between water and sky. And when a pilot loses that spatial awareness, he does not have visual references, it becomes unbelievably difficult to maintain straight and level flight. JFK Jr. took off that day, set his plane to autopilot, and he was flying on a beautiful trip out to Martha's Vineyard. But as he got close, he needed to disengage the autopilot, and now he was the pilot in command. But his head was not in the game, and when he looked to his instruments and then looked back up to the sky and couldn't tell water from sky, very quickly he became disoriented and tragically flew the plane right into the ocean. They say, the statistic is, that for a non-instrument rated pilot, you can fly on hazy days, but if you lose your spatial awareness and do not have a visual reference, you find yourself in instrument conditions, you have about three minutes. After three minutes, you become spatially disoriented and literally you cannot tell up from down, right to left, your brain, brain plays tricks on you and you are headed for disaster. Disorientation and then disaster. So my sermon title this morning is Seeing Clearly, because there's an, an analogy to life. If we fly through this life with our head in the clouds, not in touch with or having a grip on reality, there's a danger of disorientation, and the result of disorientation is tragedy and disaster. As Christians, we take seriously reality. And we claim, don't we, to have a grip on reality. We want to call evil, evil. Sin, sin. Righteousness, righteousness. We take that seriously. It's the point of our being here today, frankly. Right? We come in here to, again, week after week, recalibrate our minds, recalibrate our souls. We come back in here week after week because we need to get in touch with what's real. This is real. The scriptures serve that same purpose. They're meant to keep us focused, to give us that visual reference, lest we become disoriented. We can't tell what's real, what's important, what's not important, what's good, what's evil. 
The scriptures keep us focused, keep us grounded. And if we pull ourselves away from worship, if we pull ourselves away from the scriptures, the results can be disastrous. Now, within the scriptures, the book of Revelation does this for us, as all the scriptures ground us in reality, but the book of Revelation does this in a peculiar and unique way. But I believe the book of Revelation does the greatest job of showing us reality and revealing to us what is truly real. Now, this might surprise you, because I think for many Christians, we're intimidated by the book of Revelation. We, We see it more as an obscuring of reality, all these crazy symbols and signs and images, and we just say, better to stay out of that book. But the book is not called the obscuring of Jesus Christ. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is intended to unmask reality in a way that maybe no other book does. And it serves that purpose for us, doesn't it? We look around the world at oppressive leaders in their fancy suits and nice military garb. John comes to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ and calls them beasts. He unmasks them for what they are. We look around at beautiful, glitzy, all-providing cultures, tempting cultures like America with so much in our culture to offer us. It's so exciting. John looks at cultures like that and calls them harlots. We look at natural disasters around the world, which appear to be these great natural accidents in the world. John looks at them, and he says they're trumpet blasts from on high. Messages from God saying all is not right with the world. We look around and see a divided, broken church, not all that attractive sometimes. John unmasks it for what it is, and he says it's the glorious, radiant bride of Christ. See, that's what the book of Revelation does. It lets us see in a vision what is really real. And that's why we gather here morning after morning and why we got to get in the scriptures. Today, our text is Revelation 5, 1 through 10, which I love this text. And it is a glorious vision given to us in this bigger vision of the book of Revelation from John. And I believe John or Jesus through John would have us see three things clearly this morning. First, the desperate nature of things apart from Jesus Christ. Secondly, the majesty and the meekness of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the privilege and the pattern of our calling in Christ. Dan read the text for you this morning, so I will not read it over again. But let us consider these three things and see what John or Jesus would have us see in them. First, the desperate nature of things apart from Jesus Christ. John, in this vision, in chapter 4, has been lifted up and given the privilege to be in the throne room of Almighty God. And he describes in chapter 4 this experience in this throne room in glorious terms. In chapter 5, the text begins with John being allowed to see, or perhaps forced to see now, the reality of God's sovereignty and his rule, but apart from the satisfying satisfying work of Jesus Christ. There is the Lord on the throne, and in his right hand is the scroll, the purpose, the redemptive purposes of God, his plan rolled up in a scroll. But there's a problem. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. It's locked up. It's not being fulfilled. 
And John looked and oh, how he wishes that the the purposes of God would, would be unfurled and worked out throughout history, but they're not. They're locked up tight. They're not being accomplished. And then he becomes an eyewitness to this cosmic search for a worthy candidate who will be able to unloose the seals and to open the scroll and bring it to fruition. And the great strong angel goes throughout heaven and earth and under the earth calling out, who is worthy? to break the seals and to unloose the scroll, to to bring to accomplishment the work of Almighty God and His redemptive purposes, and there's no one. No one. No one in heaven, no angel, no one on earth or under the earth. No great world leader throughout all history with their wonderful, fantastic utopian visions, not one is able to bring about the purposes of God. No great philosopher in all his wisdom, no spiritual leader with all their deep spiritual insights, not even any biblical character. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. There is no one worthy to unloose the seals and to open the scroll. It is, if I may quote Bob Dylan, as Dylan said in his great song, Blind Willie McTell, now God is in his heaven, And we all want what's his. But power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all that there is. John looks at this cosmic search for somebody worthy and there's nothing but corruptible seed. And John appropriately begins to weep. John, the apostle, weeps and weeps because there's no one worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And without Christ, without somebody worthy, there is no meaning. There's no hope. There's no purpose. There's no redemption. And John appropriately weeps. What other response is there if God's redemptive purposes are locked up tight in that scroll? Which I think begs the question, doesn't it? Why don't we see more weeping in the world? Why is not everybody weeping incessantly? those who do not believe and trust in Jesus Christ. John sees clearly, but may I dare to say that our non-believing friends and neighbors, and if you are not a believer here this morning, may I say that your head is in the clouds, that you've lost your bearings, you've lost your visual reference, life doesn't make sense anymore, why are you not weeping? See, our friends and our neighbors who do not trust in Jesus Christ, refuse to deal with the futility of their worldview. They refuse to look square in the eyes the meaningless of a world apart from Jesus Christ. And so they do what all Americans do, fill their life with busyness. Hit the grindstone, put your nose down there, never look up and deal with reality. Just work, work, work. Keep yourself busy so we don't have to deal with reality. Entertain ourselves to death so that we never have to deal with the harsh, futile reality of life apart from Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, said in the 17th century that the one thing man seeks to avoid above everything else is quietness, solitude. Because in solitude and quietness, you're forced to deal with ultimate questions. Who who am I? Who am I accountable to? And so we busy ourselves, distract ourselves so we don't have to deal with reality. And if Blaise Pascal thought he understood distraction, he knew nothing compared to 21st century American culture 
All we have is distraction all around us all the time. Are we ever quiet? Do we ever deal with reality? And so our non-believing friends pursue with unabated energy what the scriptures call vapor and think that they can hold on to it. They think it's substantial. They think it worth pursuing their whole lives without ever lifting their eyes to realize that they're driving this beautiful car on a nice smooth highway, but at the end of the highway there's a cliff. And so you say to them, hey friend, there's a cliff coming, and they turn the radio up. And they say, no, I want to listen to this song. This is a great song. No, but there's a cliff coming. Hey, what do you think about this new sound system I have? But there's a cliff coming. But they don't listen. Their head is in the clouds, refusing to deal with reality, refusing to weep. But I can tell you that from John's perspective, better to weep now and then find Christ. Because on one day, all will see clearly. And on that day, there will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth, according to the scriptures. Our non-believing friends, unfortunately, and we're prone to this too, brothers and sisters, we're prone to the temptation of it. Get our heads up in the clouds, lose our visual bearings, lose our reference, and the result is disorientation and the danger, you got three minutes. And the danger is destruction, not John. John sees clearly and he weeps, and I pray the same for us. So first, let us see the disastrous effects of a world without Jesus Christ, but then secondly, according to John, the majesty and the meekness of Jesus Christ. John is weeping, and it is just glorious that in the midst of this weeping, the strong and mighty angel comes to him and gives the words that only the gospel can give. Weep no more. Weep no more. That's the gospel. There is, he says to John, a solution to the futility. There has been found one worthy champion, but only one, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And I believe what that is saying to us is that there is one, only one legitimate reason to ever stop weeping, and it's Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ who is not weeping is either deluded or distracted. Jesus Christ is the only reason, the legitimate reason, to ever stop weeping. And the angel comes to John and points his attention there. And this is so important for us as Christians. Because I believe for many Christians, Jesus Christ is like one facet of our life. He's one more thing on our Facebook profile. I'm a male. I'm a teacher. I'm a Dodgers fan. I'm a Christian. No. No, not for John. Not for John. For John, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian male. I'm a Christian teacher. I'm a Christian Dodgers fan. Christianity shapes everything because Christ radically transforms my whole worldview. He becomes new life. Jesus Christ is the difference between life and death. He is the only difference between futility and purpose and between hope and hopelessness. I pray you see him that way. If you see him that way, you will join the chorus at the end of this text where they're just circling around him and wave after wave of praise to him because he has made all things new. 
And so John is told of Christ's work and he's pointed. Behold, says the angel, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed and he is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Our lion of the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49. That root of David, i.e. king from Isaiah chapter 11. Our king is finally on the throne. Futility is vanished away in him. But again, I believe John would have us see clearly. John would have us see clearly what majesty is and what meekness is. First, let us see clearly what majesty is. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. But brothers and sisters, this lion is no ordinary lion. I can only imagine what John turned to see. This great Aslan figure. But what does he see? What kind of lion is this? It's no ordinary lion. The lion he sees is a slain lamb. That's no ordinary lion. If we're to understand majesty properly, then Jesus must define it for us. It's a lion, majestic, but it's a lion who is a slain lamb. And in this wonderful image, Jesus exposes the idolatry of our, the world's idea of majesty. See, for the world, majesty is raw power. It's power. Bigger guns, better armies, more money, the ability to command and people do what you say. That's majesty. It's pomp. It's crowns of gold and jewels. But Jesus exposes the idolatry of that, doesn't he? What does majesty, true majesty, look like? It looks like obedient, sacrificial, life-giving service. It looks like a slain lamb. It looks meek. It looks, by the world's standards, weak. Right? It's a crown of thorns that composed so rich a crown. That's what we just sang. No crown of gold on his head. A crown of thorns, but never has a crown of thorns composed so rich a crown. That is majesty. Let us see clearly what majesty really is by looking at Jesus. And on the flip side, let us understand what meekness is, truly is, by looking at Jesus. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. I turned to look, and there was a lamb standing as if slain. And just as he is no ordinary lion, he is no ordinary lamb. He redefines meekness. There have been in the history of this world, I reckon, millions of slain lambs. But there has not, in the history of the world, been one slain lamb who remained standing. I turned to behold the line of the tribe of Judah, and there was a slain lamb standing. This slain lamb is unlike any other. He redefines meekness. Meekness is strength, though the world may call it weakness. And there has never been in the history of the world a slain lamb with seven horns that I know of, or seven eyes. The seven horns representing perfect and complete power and authority. The seven eyes representing the seven spirits sent out all into the earth to represent perfect knowledge. This is the lamb slain that he turns to behold this worthy candidate. The world may view meekness as weakness, but for John, it is the strength that overcomes the world. 
And so let us get our head out of the clouds and let us see clearly and let us see Christ and worship him in all his majestic meekness and all of his meek majesty. So first, the desperate nature of things apart from Christ. Secondly, the true head out of the clouds vision of a meek yet majestic Jesus Christ. And then finally, let us see clearly the privilege and pattern of our calling. John reports, after having this wonderful event, the weeping stops, he turns to behold this wondrous, glorious image of Jesus Christ, and then he is overwhelmed by rapturous praise. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, and later thousands upon thousands, waves of praise breaking over him there in the throne room of God, all worshiping the seal-breaking slain lamb lion of a king. And tucked in that praise, in verse 10 at the end of our text, tucked into the praise of the saints is a revelation of our calling. For the text says that he has purchased a people from every race, every language, every tribe, every tongue, that we might be kings and priests to our God. That is what he has called us to be, kings and priests to our God. What a turn of events from weeping on the floor with no hope to the good news that he has saved you to the good news that you will reign with him as a king and serve with him as a priest. What a glorious privilege. He says to the church in Laodicea, in chapter 3, the I'll spew you out of my mouth church, he says to that church, to he who overcomes, I will give, listen to this, to he who overcomes, I will give the privilege to sit with me on my throne. He has given to his saints the amazing, humbling privilege to sit with him on his throne. That's your calling, to be kings and priests to our God, that is to say, to be lions and to be slain lambs. To remember that we are kings and priests in the pattern of our great king, the slain lamb lion. Or like Doug Wilson said in a recent sermon, he said, we are the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet of Christ, but never forget this, the hands and feet of Christ have been pierced. The side of Christ was pierced. We are the body of Christ, and we are then to bear the wounds of Christ in our body. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and I love to quote, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is what we are called, privileged to be called in light of Christ's work to do. To go about losing our lives knowing that in Jesus Christ, because of his seal-breaking work, losing our lives means saving our lives. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, enduring now these light and momentary afflictions, and go read Paul's life if you want to know what his light and momentary afflictions look like. They're pretty rough. But Paul's not thinking about them. He's got his eyes on the Lamb. And in light of that, Paul can say, we now endure these light and momentary afflictions because we know that because of the seal-breaking work of our Lord, they are working for us an eternal and weighty glory. So get to it. You have been privileged to rule with him and to serve with him as a priest in his pattern, and it is a wonderful privilege. So let us then be excited. Stop our weeping. 
Look upon Christ and get out into the world, seeing him clearly and becoming risk takers for the kingdom. We have nothing to lose. All is secure because finally he has given us purpose by opening that scroll. Let us avoid the temptation of our neighbors in trying to pursue and to cling to what the scriptures call vapor. And let us live our lives with praise. Let's get our head out of the clouds. That's what we're here for today. And let's see him clearly. And let's follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know the temptation. The temptation for us is to become disoriented. To have our head in the clouds, to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But we pray that by your spirit you would transform us through texts like this in the renewing of our minds, that, Father, we would be slain lamb lions, kings and priests after the pattern of our great royal priest, laying our lives down for one another and for the sake of the world, knowing that in Jesus Christ they will be picked back up, raised up, and we will reign with him. Keep us faithful, we pray, and we pray for friends, family, neighbors, any even here this morning, who do not trust in you. Cause them to weep now, Father, that in their weeping they might be reassured by that powerful angel that there is one, even Jesus Christ our Lord, who has now prevailed and in whom alone we may have hope. We give you praise in his name. Amen.